cold silence that we don't dare speak. There's a wall between us and a river so deep. We keep pretending that there's nothing wrong. There's a cold of silence and it can't go on. They smell the wind, they know what the people want to hear, 
And that's why after revolutions down through the ages, we often end up with a worse system or just as bad as the one you just overthrew. Look at all the countries in Latin America, not that they've had much of a chance with the West always interfering in their affairs. But you end up often with simply new tyrants who suddenly change all of their decisions and all of their, their theories and so on. Their ideologies go out the window as soon as they're in power. I think Woody Allen did a good movie on that, and it was called Bananas. And you saw the dictator who gets into power after overthrowing the last one. And he, he comes up with all these silly laws as soon as he's in. And I'm going to continue with these conspiracy theories and coincidence theories after the following messages. Hi folks, I'm Alan Watt. I don't know if I'm back on the air or not. I didn't hear anything. And there's some problems back at the station, I think. But tonight, I'm going to talk about a man who should know about conspiracies. And that was Professor Carol Quigley, who wrote the book Tragedy and Hope. And he was, he was the historian for the Council on Foreign Relations and the Royal Institute for International Affairs, the Council on Foreign Relations is only the American branch of the same organization. And in page 950, he says this, he says this about the, the, the creation, the setup of this organization. He says, uh, at the risk of some repetition, the story will be summarized here because the American branch of this organization, sometimes called the Eastern Establishment in the last generation, played a significant role in the history of the United States and in the last generation. The round table groups, round table groups, these are the ones you'll hear after all UN conferences and all the big world wildlife fund conferences and all these characters have round table groups and it's all part of the same structure. The roundtable groups were semi-secret discussion and lobbying groups organized by Lionel Curtis, Philip Kerr, who was Lord Lothian, and Sir William S. Maris in 1908 to 1911. This was done on behalf of Lord Milner, the dominant trustee of the Rhodes, that's the Cecil Rhodes, the Rhodes Scholarships for World Government, the Rhodes Trust in the two decades, 1905 to 1925. The original purpose of these groups was to seek to federate the English-speaking world along lines laid down by Cecil Rhodes in 1853, where well, he died actually in 1902, and William T. Stead, who died in 1912. And the money from the organizational work came originally from the Rhodes Trust. By 1915, roundtables groups existed in seven countries, including England, South Africa, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, India, in a rather loosely organized group in the United States. And he goes on to name all the main characters within the United States. And even mentions all the newspapers they owned, including the Christian Science Monitor and all of the other big ones. And he says here, the chief backbone, this is on page 951, the chief backbone of this organization grew up along the already existing financial cooperation running from the Morgan Bank in New York to a group of international financiers in London, led by Lazard Brothers. Milner himself in 1901 had refused a fabulous offer 
worth up to $100,000 a year to become one of the three partners of the Morgan Bank in London in succession to the younger. And then they go on to mention in, in the same book, in the same page actually, by the end of World War I, they had set up the organization in every part of the British Commonwealth. And the idea was to, be, to create front groups, many front groups with different names, all going back to the Royal Institute for International Affairs that would bring, first of all, the English-speaking peoples of the world together under one complete system. And then gradually, under the guise of giving aid to other third world countries, bring them in, install your own people over those third world countries and bring them into the same culture and give a world culture to everyone. And it was not done by people who were altruistic and fretted at night about poor, starving children in far-off lands. The main members that this character mentions in his book were all multimillionaires. They were all part of the leading establishments, and they still are. He also talks about the fact that they created so many movements, different movements, that people joined organizations and led those movements, that people thought they were either left-wing or communist or far right-wing or fascist. They controlled both sides of every dispute because their boys from the Royal Institute for International Affairs led those groups on both sides. Meanwhile, all the guys below are all haggling with each other and pointing fingers to that group over there. That's the dialectic in motion. Meanwhile, all that time, there was a third party working hard and pulling the strings of both sides. And it's been like that for over a hundred years. Now, this private organization that calls itself an institution, it's an institute. Look up the legal definitions of an institution. The Bank of Canada which isn't a bank at all, is called an institution. And when the head of the Bank of Canada was asked to explain it, he says, no, it's not really federal. It's more a, a kind of service that the people need. Quite the service, isn't it, to be brought into slavery through massive debt. But this is what the Royal Institute for International Affairs is composed of even today. It's the descendants of the same few hundred families just a few hundred families, both the male side and the female side of those families, that are in all the prime positions across the whole planet. And they've been working for over a hundred years, more openly than they ever did before, because it did not start with them. The British Commonwealth idea was born, remember, in the 1500s, like in the 16th century. John Dee talked about it, a global system to come, where people would use English as the main tongue he meant for all business. And sure enough, English is the international language of business. Dee also talked about the terms that countries would be admitted into this free trading zone. And he mentioned the term, the most favored nation, trading nation status would be given to those who complied and uh, basically adopted the same system. So these characters have been taking over the world gradually. You'll find from the Royal Institute for International Affairs, Council on Foreign Relations, you also have the Trilateral Commission, and some of the members at the top, the key technocrats at the top, and our whole lifetime here, and they're still going yet, the same guys, are all over the place making deals and signing uh, deals with countries. 
private deals in some way, but given official backing by governments on the other. These are people who are not elected by anybody, and they get away with it because they represent the most powerful, as far as wealth goes, people on the planet. It's to do with wealth. The whole world revolves around this odd thing called money. And money demands and money commands. Those who have it rule the world. And they're certainly doing it now. They're bringing us into a brand new uh, feudal type system, as Carl Quigley says, in his own book, in the same book, Tragedy and Hope. And the reason he, he got this book published, or actually put it out in the first place, was because he thought he was an inner, higher member of this organization, and he thought the public would accept all the things that this group had been doing, because it truly had been behind the, the, the latent histories of the United States and Britain and the whole Commonwealth of Britain at that time. They had been behind all the major wars, and they also dangled, as I say, this idea of opposition before your eyes so as you'd attack all the wrong fronts, fronts which they also controlled, like feints, they call it in boxing. A feint is where a boxer is going to hit you with the right, where you defend yourself and leave your left wide open, he hits you right there. And, and that's what they do. It's the same technique. You, you attack what you see as the obvious source of your malcontent, and it's always the wrong one. Meanwhile, these guys go sailing through the middle as the left battles the right. And they're still doing it today. And they've almost pulled off their whole agenda. Now, of course, they're using the big sciences on us. And members of this group, and personally, this is the top secret society on the planet because it's completely meshed, it's completely integrated with MI6 and the CIA. And in the same book, in fact, this man, Carol Quigley, the historian for this group, because they have their own personal historian. Don't want to lose all their records, because one day they'll give monuments to each other and for what they did and all the rest of it. They've got someone to keep the records. And, and he, he talks about uh, how they've been behind all of this and how, how it fills in the blank spots in history and how their goal is to bring in a new type of feudal system with the CEOs of big international corporations basically creating a new feudal system because they'll be the only lobbying groups left on the planet because you need money to have a lobbying group and these guys have the money they're backed by the big boys with the money and quickly mentions that their their place in england chatham house their main headquarters became became the headquarters of the oss during world war ii that became mi6 and the reason it became the headquarters was because the members that comprised of MI6, MI5, and all the, the mines that they have out there, and I'm sure there's many, many more, were, were, were members of, of this same group. And before that, they had what they called the Secret Service. The Secret Service was a part of the establishment, of a society which could overrule any court. It could overrule all police in the country and in the British Commonwealth. And they could get what they wanted by showing their little passport. They, had, they, they acted on behalf of the crown. There was no questioning of it. And these, were, these people were recruited, in fact, from the elite families themselves. They didn't allow the peasants into it. So it was the clique that plundered the earth for centuries, lived off the people for centuries, making sure 
that the next hundred years or so was going to be belong to them as well. And the way you do that is to plan ahead a society with this whole system revolving around economics, and all you have to do is own the banks, basically. And what are the banks anyway? There's just people who pass out paper here and there and create money out of nothing. We know the whole story for those who go into the whole banking scam. It's a complete con job. So is debt as well. It's a complete con job. The world is run on IOUs. That's what the, how the world is run. And at one time it used to be just the, the big kings and queens who overindulged and had to borrow money from the banking boys. Now it's down to the personal and person in the street. Back after the following messages. Free from traditional 
values, free from traditional values. You understand this brave new world there, who will have no doubt in fulfilling their objectives by means of purged techniques with which they will influence the behavior of people and will control and watch the society in all details. It will become possible to exert a practically permanent watch on each citizen of the world. Now, these are the kind of, I'll repeat that for the hard of, he, of thinking in a minute, but these are the kind of statements that, that you imagine coming out of some ancient tyrant in Rome that thought he was a god, because the people had to worship these tyrants, you know, as gods. And they would say things like, and here we have it written by the same people today, maybe even their descendants for all we know, and it's very possibly true. Uh, either that is right of a science fiction movie where the blob uh, says, ha ha, I want to control the world. And, but here's people at the top uh, in charge of military positions and high scientific warfare divisions boasting about the technotronic era. When they'll use scalar type weaponry on the public and it's called, it's called silent weapons for quiet wars. The public will never know what's happening to them. We're being sprayed. We're seeing the, the pausing in the sky at nights. They're using this stuff. I'll repeat that for the hard of thinking, as I say. The technocratic age is slowly designing an everyday more controlled society. The society will be dominated by an elite of persons free from traditional values. In other words, there's no, no bonding with the people. There's no right and wrong with them. They have no traditional values will have no doubt in fulfilling their objectives by means of purged techniques with which they will influence the behavior of people and will control and watch the society in all details. It will become possible to exert a practically permanent watch on each citizen of the world. And you think everything's just coincidence, the coincidence theory? Read Brzezinski's book, Hear it from an arrogant psychopath yourself. Read, read his book and see what they say. And look into Professor Carl Quigley that didn't live too long after he published his book. He was getting too big for his boots. He thought it was too important. Now, I don't get money for promoting these books. Now, some of these, even front groups for Christians, uh, are really publishing houses, and they give you all these conspiracy books to read, and they simply republish stuff that's out of print and make a killing on it. I don't do that, but I do pick the books that are, at least have been available in the past in, in local libraries and all the rest of it. And that's why I suggest people actually look for a lot of these books, get them through interlibrary loans. You'll find that if you go through the books searches on the Internet, very often, and I've found this after I've talked about things like the, the book that was put out by the Club of Rome called The First Global Revolution, where they discuss coming up with the idea to con the whole world but global, global warming so we'd all submit and surrender our wills to them and they could dominate us. They, they, on some of the searches that's been done by people I know on the internet, they've found about 30 pages have been taken out of the books since I talked about it. So get the real book. It's only about 75 cents used on some of these used computers uh, stands. And I'll be back with more about this after the following messages. You're listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network. 
because you can handle the truth. Queen Elizabeth I 
of England. And he writes about that in his own books. They're still available in universities today, these books. He was a spy. His title was 007, his number. 007. 007, James Bond, of course, means he's bonded. He swore an oath. He'd take a bond in front of the bondsman. He swore an oath. And that's where that comes from. Now, I think we have Bill from Maryland on the line. Are you there, Bill? Hey, Alan. It's Phil. Can you hear me? Phil, okay. Yeah, I can hear you. Okay. I, I've been listening to you for about a year, and I, w- I was telling my wife, you're the kind of guy I could, I'd like to go fishing with and sit down and have a beer. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But uh, I think the jig is up for these folks. I think that um, that there's more and more people talking about it, and with the demise of mainstream media and the newspapers, and with the uh, uh, rise of the internet and other forms of communication that we're on them and we know what's going on now. And, um, I think there's, uh, um, just a, uh, what would you call it? A uh, critical mass forming and, and that, uh, and they, and they know it. Well, and here's so, the thing. See, they foresaw this. They saw this before they gave us the internet. Again, Zygmunt Brzezinski talked and published works on the coming this coming form, they didn't call it the Internet at the time, that the public even hadn't even heard of home computers. He said, a, a means of communication will be given to the general public, which they'll think will be enabling them for more freedom of thought, speech, and communication, but will actually, in fact, we'll be running it, he said, and, and it will be, be, be forming opinions along the stream of a global government. So these guys are no, no dummies at the top, and the biggest boys, the big players that own the media, the mainstream media, are right now working their way in to own, own all of the servers, etc., that you're on on the Internet. They're going to contr- they want to control all that content as well. So, so never, ever, ever make the mistake of thinking these guys, they have think tanks that go every, through every chess move before they start the first move. Oh, I know. Yeah. I know. I'm, I, I hear you, and I'm not, I, I don't want to fall into the trap of thinking that we've got the upper hand now. I think... Yeah. What I'm trying to say is that um, the realization, you know, that that Neo Anderson had uh, in the movie that everything was, you know, a construct and it wasn't real is what I have had months and months ago now, thanks to you and other folks. And I think that a lot of the people in the public are having it as well. So yeah. um, well, it's I, traveling. I, it's, it's spreading. Right? There's no doubt it's spreading. And I'm also aware that there are boys, and I'm certain of this, to be honest, I really truly believe this, all the spraying the skies and all the rest of the stuff they're doing, I think they're trying to tranquilize the public as they bring us through these changes. And I was just thinking the other day, you know, when they started spraying heavily around um, 98 across Canada, really heavily, and it's been pretty well daily since, and most of the world, do you realize how many years they must have had the big chemical companies working to produce millions and millions of tons of this stuff they're spraying in advance? And they must have been doing it since the end of World War II. Yeah. I live in a flight path for Baltimore-Washington International Airport, and I look out the window in the morning. I show my wife. I said, look at this. It looks like a tic-tac-toe board. I got up the other day. I couldn't believe the number of trails from horizon to horizon, north to south. When they take off out of BWI, I see them make their ascent. And a lot of times there's two planes, one's following the other for some reason. I see yeah. that a lot. 
And uh, and then on their low approaches, their low finals, they're so low, I can see the colors. Oh, that's Southwest, West Air, whoever. But I I just cannot get over the amount of spraying that they're doing. And then on a clear sky day, you can see a normal contrail. Yes, you know, it's, it's, years it's after not that bad. But but that's even now NASA's put out a, a documentary for young uh, it's children at school to see to try to convince them of what co- contrails look like, which means this is a long term agenda that they're going for such a, a young group. Okay. What's the tipping point where um, I, I think I have a couple questions for you, and one of them I want to ask you is along some spiritual lines. But w- where do you see the tipping point for this, Alan? Because it can't the tipping, go the tipping on. point will come uh, when everyone's backs to the wall. That's where it comes. Yeah. And that's what the other side have always said in their history books, that when the rabble ever do anything about it, that's what they are, is a rabble, an yeah. unorganized mob, basically, with no leaders. And, yeah. and that's unfortunately, Zygmunt Brzezinski said it too when he was asked if he thought the people would ever rebel <coughs> against the system. He says, what do the people do? He says, he says, well, you can beat them, you can starve them, he says, and do they turn and revolt? He says, no, they, they turn around and eat their dead. That's what they think of the general public. Yeah, it is. It really is. It's utter, utter contempt and arrogance. <clears throat> um, do you think that's soon, in the next five to ten years? It's already underway. I mean, I'd like to get the, the, the medical data on the deaths that are caused by all the spraying, because it's got to be accumulated in your system. And I know it, just where everybody comes down with massive bronchitis, often with the sprays. You know, I've often thought about You can't even take a video camera to the airport nowadays. But if no. you were to trace this stuff back, you would have to somehow something has to be added to the jet fuel. And if you, it's not just commercial. This was signed. These are military jets. I've got <coughs> plenty of photographs of them. They're white. They have four massive engines, long swept back wings, and and uh, sometimes they will come low. I've seen one very low. And they're white, no markings whatsoever on them. Now, that, means, seen, that means there's an international air force somewhere, base somewhere. I've, seen, I've seen those, yeah. I've seen those, but I've, I've only seen them very, very high. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they, they climb pretty high coming out of the Baltimore airport here, and, uh, and the contrail is practically from horizon to horizon. Yes. The trail. Um, you have to be quick now, those other callers. What's our hope, Alan, after all this? No, after the hope is all. if we, if the people get back their natural humanity and realize they've been put into separate little boxes, separate from everyone else, and that's what government said to do, is to create a, a form of depersonalization. That's what they call it. When you end up in your little box there playing on this electronic gizmo that's got you completely trapped, you're not dealing with real people. You're in this real world of electronics is a trick of the elect, the electronic trick, and that's what, they're do- that's what they want. We've got to start communicating in person and meeting people and start being humane very, very fast and, and sharing the word because it's our humanity. It's our humanity we've got to get back, our humaneness to each other. We've got to get back. That's what's going to save us. Okay. Thanks, Alan. Yep. It's a pleasure. I've also got Larry from Minnesota. Are you there? Hello. Hello, Larry. Hey, Alan. Uh, glad I got through it away in a while. <laughs> yes, go ahead. Uh, just, yeah, I've been following your work for a couple of years now, and um, got a lot of things I can comment on, but I'll keep it simple tonight. Um, I remember about a year ago you did a show with Visigoth. Yeah. And um, you're talking about the more esoteric kind of supernatural side of this. Mm-hmm. 
and uh, you'd made some comments about like um, a few personal experiences you've had, mm-hmm. um, like when you were at hanging out at Alistair Crowley's old house. Oh yeah, and then some of the testimony you've heard from some of these uh, higher level Freemasons and like mm-hmm. their odd ceremonies with um, yeah, like red glowing eyes and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just wonder if you could elaborate on that a little bit. Well, the, the thing is, uh, I've talked to some high masons who all told me some of the higher ceremonies. These are about 33rd degree. And uh, separate ones, you know, this could all be a setup, of course, everything can be, but separate ones from different parts of, in fact, different countries have told me the same ritual where people are admitted into a, a room uh, that particular degreed people or members are in that room. A candidate from a lower degree is brought up onto this kind of square platform, and a light shines down from the ceiling and envelopes him and the two people who escort them. And the, they can say they all both said exactly the same thing. You can see those who escort them; their lights are ruby red, or their eyes are ruby red under the lights. And it's once the guy takes the actual oath, etc., it turns to a red. Now, that could all be a hoax for the public or even for the ones who observe, because these guys play tricks amongst tricks within tricks on their own people. Who knows? But uh, And they do love to bamboozle the public. But where we are today with all of this is, and here is the strange phenomena, Madame Blavatsky said about theosophy, which is a female branch of masonry. It was meant really for females to get them into this movement to work towards what they thought would be a better world was actually a pre-designed system that they were going to work towards. And Blavatsky said, our mission in the 1800s, our mission is to blend science and cross the barrier between science and spirit. So it makes you wonder, because today they can, they can actually emulate all of the things that we used to call poltergeist phenomena. They can do it literally with, with high uh, technology. Nick Bigage showed stuff, machines that could put thoughts in your head from a distance, line of sight. Obsolete. On CBC Television Canada. And he had, he had tables of this equipment, small things you could put in your pocket and point at someone. And this is obsolete equipment that the CIA used, he said, in the 1950s. So they've crossed a barrier where you can't tell what is supernatural or what is actually scientific, because they can emulate both. Yeah, I was just at a Halloween party, and mm-hmm. you know they had a blacklight room, and there was a mirror in there, and everyone was noticing that their teeth and eyes were glowing. You know, yeah. so you know there's all kinds of tricks one can use. Yes, and, and the tricks. I mean, even on their own members, if you were to witness that, and you were true, a true, a true believer, a real brother amongst the brothers and that was done on you, you would believe what you saw as being supernatural. They could have all been done by gizmos and science, too. Or, or, or contrary to that, they could even have put uh, uh, this equipment that made you hear something, because it can, it can give you the language of their, that your brain understands, the auditory language, uh, the electronic signals. I'm sure it can also give you have an hallucination as well. Yeah, no doubt. So um, that's how far they about, are uh, with these sciences. But haven't you had any personal experiences with the uh, supernatural or anything yeah. odd? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I think most people have. It's something, right. it's something they can't explain. 
And right. even, even then, when I have them, I say, well, you know, it's possible they can do this with science. Was it science? I'll never know. <laughs> you'll, you'll never know. I guess that's the ultimate question, right? That's right. <laughs> and, and then again, okay. too, uh, I think the, the answer to that could be, what did you personally get out of it? Uh, was it meaningful? Um, that, that would be the other part that might answer part of that question. If you personally get something out of it that you needed at that time. But if you're less, left with a question mark, you're left with more questions than answers. Yeah. Right. Okay. All righty. Thanks a lot. Bye now. Bye. And I think we've got Peter on the line as well. Peter, um, where is it from Tennessee, is it? Peter. Yeah, hi, Alan. Hello. Hi, I'm in Toronto. You're in Toronto, okay. Yeah, I want to say hello to you. Listen, right. The markets are howling these days economically. And you're talking about this Anglo-American conspiracy business. Mm -hmm. You mentioned at one time before that uh, uh, the Brits signed somewhere in 45, 46, the United Nations to deindustrialize. Yeah. Canada lost the Avro Arrow in the, early, in the 50s. That's right. Probably that was the mark of our, the epitome of our uh, denouement in, uh, in, uh, in deindustrialization. Yeah. When did it happen with the U.S.? That we're getting the gutting of the U.S. economy to such an extent yep. that, for example, in Canada now, the Canadian dollar went up. Some people are happy, but businesses are going bankrupt because they can't sell their products anymore. That's right. So here is the, uh, 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 at least according to the Globe and Mail today, which mm -hmm. happens to be a business paper in Toronto. Yeah. When did this come in the U.S., do you have a, 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 a date, a demarcation when this started? Yeah, ho hold on, and I'll, I'll try and talk about that after okay. the following break. Can you, you know, was there a definite date as, for example, it happened to the Brits 
you were mentioning 45 signing this agreement, the United Nations uh, uh, business, mm-hmm. to, 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 to kill Britain, you know, the, the industrial Britain, if I can put it that way. Yes. Well, you uh, see, uh, even in Britain, this is what they knew, and the economists were all brought into the real economists, not these talking heads you get on television, but the, the guys who advise the top boys. They always say that the, the economy is like a huge engine, and even if you stop producing, it'll take 20 to 30 years for the impact eventually to hit, and it'll hit hard when it does. And so Britain uh, was, was, was on its way out, and sure enough, uh, they started deindustrializing at the end of World War II, and, and by the 70s, that's when it really hit home to Britain. The average person at the bottom felt it. Well, the U.S. is very, very similar. Uh, they started... Uh, the ball rolling for deindustrialization uh, about the late 60s, beginning of the 70s, and then the big boys again with uh, these non-governmental organizations, members of the trilateral and CFR groups, uh, working for on behalf of the supposed governments, signed all these deals towards um, NAFTA. The first it was the free trade negotiations, where they actually talked about a United Americas for the first time. That was back in the 80s. And they, they said that the, it was published in Canada. The new capital of the Americas, they were thinking, would be put in Montreal. They had to get a different one from, from Ottawa right. and from Washington, D.C. And so uh, this was all discussed, and everybody, you know, we all see and hear the same news, but people don't believe it when they're told. And uh, that's when they started really uh, deindustrializing the, the U.S. fast, because once they had the GATT signed, they'd already done all the framework for the transference of big corporate factories over to China and signed all the deals. That took years and years of bureaucratic uh, negotiations to set up all of that. Then the big corporations pulled out of the U.S. back in the 90s, but the early 90s, they really started rolling out the corporations. And lo and behold, we find out afterwards that every corporation that left the shores of the U.S. going over to China was getting subsidized by the taxpayers of the U.S. and Canada so that they could ship all their stuff over there, set up factories. We paid for it all, and we'd pay their losses for the the next seven to ten years. Can you believe that? Yeah. So from Hamish and myself, from Ontario, Canada, it's good night, and may your God or your gods go with you.